following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. 1 Peter chapter 2 in your Bibles this morning, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 2. One of the earliest Christian apologist was an Athenian philosopher, and his name was Aristides. And he lived in the early second century, and he wrote a defense of the Christian faith that was to be presented to the Roman emperor at the time, Emperor Hadrian. And I want you to please listen carefully to a part of what Aristides wrote. But the Christians, O king, do not commit adultery nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And their oppressors, they appease and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, are pure as virgins. And their daughters are modest. And their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in the hope of a recompense to come in the other world. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen or bondwomen or children, through love towards them they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly, and soberly, as the Lord their God commanded them. Such, O King, is the commandment of the law of the Christians, and such is their manner of life. Aristides felt that the strongest proof he could offer the emperor in defense of the Christian faith was the lives of Christians themselves who they were, how they lived, how they treated other people. Our text this morning in 1 Peter is only two verses, but they remind us of the witness that we should have in this world. They're very powerful and convicting about how we are to live our lives in this world and why we are to live that way. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Peter said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, 
that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter, in verse 11, shifts his focus from what he has been uh, speaking about the last several verses of um, who we are necessarily together and uh, how, how we're to treat one another to sort of how we are to live in this world and how we're to treat unbelievers. It's definitely a new section with that emphasis, but it flows naturally from the previous verses. If you remember from the last couple of weeks, we're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We weren't a people, but now we're God's people who should be advertisements for the great things God has done for us. And since that is our purpose, well, it makes sense that Peter would sort of then shift and discuss how that's done, how that's done in our daily lives. And he sets this section apart in verse 11 by using this very deeply affectionate term for his readers, uh, dearly beloved. Now, when you hear dearly beloved, what do you think about? You might think about a wedding, right? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Well, it's not a wedding today, but Peter uses this very affectionate term for his readers. Some modern translations use the words, dear friends, but that really doesn't capture this word in, in the depth that it should. There's a, there's a depth and warmth to this term, and it is built on the word love. I read uh, one man said this word was rarely used in secular Greek writing, even when they were talking about affectionate relationships. But this was not used that much. But we see it used quite often in the New Testament. And it's a reminder that, most importantly, we're loved by God. But we think about Peter here. Peter also loved these readers. The people that, that he's writing to, he loved them. And it's important for us to remind ourselves of that because we don't need to view Peter here and what he's about to say as being this spiritual bully who's sort of bossing people around. And if we remember Peter's character from the Gospels, I'm not going to say he could never be like that, right? He had this rocky, rash, brash personality. This is the same guy that rebuked Jesus for teaching about his death. It's the same guy who pulled his sword out the night Jesus was betrayed and cut a man's ear off. But here Peter is not being rash. He's not being a bully. He's being very gentle with these people, even though what he says is very important. He wants to remind them that they're loved by God, they're loved by him, and he's being an encourager. And you see that in this phrase, I beseech you. Some of you have a translation that say, I urge you. And really the word has the idea of being called alongside of someone else. And depending on the context, that may take on different meanings. You know, someone may be called to your side to comfort you if you're hurting. You may need that support. Someone may be called to your side to encourage you if you're down. Or maybe they're there by your side to plead with you to do something that needs to be done. And that's sort of the idea here. Peter isn't so much shaking his finger at them and telling them what to do as he is coming up beside them and putting his arm around them and, and imploring them and encouraging them to do something that they need to do. And what he's going to encourage them to do is to live in a certain way. To live in a way that is contrary 
to this world's system. But for Christians, we're not at home in this world anyway. And so Peter reminds us of that once again, and he reminds his readers of that here as he calls them strangers and pilgrims. The word pilgrims, you may have the word exiles. It's the same way Peter opened the letter. In verse 1, the first verse of the letter, he called these people these scattered pilgrims. He reminded them right off the bat that you're not at home in this world. And the second word he uses here, strangers, or you may have sojourners, you may have aliens, you may have foreigners in your translation. It was a word that was used to describe how Moses lived in Midian for a time. It was a word used to describe how the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for a time. So these two terms work together to remind us that this world is not our permanent home. It's not where we belong. It's not our permanent dwelling place. He just reminded us in the previous verses that we're God's people now. So we're citizens of heaven, and we're just sojourning here for a little while. We're like someone traveling to a foreign country for a time. And we shouldn't fit right in because we're out of place. Have you ever traveled somewhere that was so different from home that you felt uncomfortable? You weren't sure what to do. You weren't sure how to act. You weren't sure what to say. Is this going to offend somebody or is it going to offend them if I don't say this? There's, there's so many different cultures, different traditions, different customs, and you just weren't a part of that. When I was blessed in 2011 to go to Israel, there was one day where our tour group walked through the Muslim marketplace in Jerusalem. And our tour guide even made a point before we marched ourselves through this area, he said, stay with me. This is not the time to leisurely look at souvenirs. This is not the time to get lost from the group because you're taking pictures. And so we had about 40 very Western, very American-looking people, obviously tourists, probably Christians, slowly walking in a single-file line through a Middle Eastern marketplace in the middle of the Muslim section of Jerusalem. And as a six foot one, bald, pale, white guy, I felt pretty obviously out of place. This is not where I really belong. As Christians, we should feel out of place in this world because as a whole, this world has rejected the very Lord that we trust in. We should feel out of place because of the power that sin holds over people and because of the way sinful desires are not only sought after, but are praised. It's really no surprise that this world is filled with evil. That wouldn't surprise us. But we've reached a point where people will do anything to fulfill those desires and then other people will praise them for doing it. For embracing who they truly are. For following their hearts. That's how evil this world is. Is that we don't even see evil as evil anymore. But not us. We don't belong here. But notice that even though we're not at home. 
in this fallen world, Peter doesn't want us to remove ourselves from it, but rather to be different in it. This sort of parallels something I mentioned last week where separation from the world doesn't mean isolation from it. The boat needs to be in the water, but water doesn't need to be getting in the boat. And so even though we're in the world, we're not of it. We shouldn't be living like it. And so the power of sin that holds sway over this world should not hold sway over us. And so notice in verse 11, as Peter gets to what he actually urges us to do, he urges us to abstain from fleshly lusts. Abstain from fleshly lusts. What Peter means here, or what he does not mean here, is that every fleshly physical desire is inherently wrong. He doesn't mean it's wrong to be hungry. Well, I'm hungry. I guess I'm evil. No. He doesn't mean that it's wrong to have an appetite for water when you're thirsty. Those aren't the kind of fleshly desires that he's talking about. He's referring to sinful desires. Fleshly desires that are opposed to spiritual desires. And Peter's words here is something we all know a little too well, is that even saved people who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, we are not exempt from or immune from sinful desires. We fight that battle right every day. But while the lost world yields to those desires and even praises them, we should abstain from them. Of course, we need God's help to do this. But there's definitely a sense here that you're part of this too. You need to take some ownership and take some action here and hold yourself back from or hold yourself away from these desires. Keep your distance. Avoid them. Don't play around with these sinful desires in your mind. Don't fantasize about them in your heart and think, well, I'm just going to dream about it, but I'm never going to act on it. Meditating on sin will not only stunt your spiritual growth. Peter has told us to crave the Word. But don't be surprised at all when you start acting out those desires that you are constantly entertaining in your heart. Jesus said, out of the heart comes all these wicked things. So these sinful desires, they may be a part of the natural world around us. Maybe nothing for a lost person to have this desire and even do whatever they can to fulfill it. But it's got to feel out of place in our lives. We've been delivered from the power of sin. And so with God's grace... Hold yourself away from sinful desires because they're dangerous. Notice what Peter says at the end of the verse. He says they war against the soul. That's pretty strong language when you start talking about warfare. I read one author who pointed out this doesn't refer to hand-to-hand combat, but he said to a planned military expedition. This isn't a fist fight. It's a war. Sin wants to destroy you. Now, thankfully, that doesn't mean losing your salvation. 
thank the Lord that nothing we ever do, nothing this world ever throws at us, none of Satan's uh, advances can ever change the relationship that we have with God because of Jesus Christ. But sin still wants to destroy you. It wants to take away your peace, to stunt your spiritual growth, to ruin your life. Ask David if sin can ruin your life. And sin wants to destroy your witness for the Lord. Satan would love nothing more than for a Christian's life to crash and burn and offer no witness to this world. Stay away from those desires. But as we move into verse 12, there's more to being a good witness than simply not doing certain things. Right? Just because you don't get drunk every day doesn't mean you're a good witness. Just because you don't cheat on your spouse doesn't mean you're a good witness. Those are things you should abstain from. But there's also a positive side of things you should be doing. Along with abstaining from sinful desires, we should be manifesting a holy, good lifestyle and good works in front of people. Notice verse 12 again. Look at this first phrase. Peter says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. There's a little play on words here that we sort of miss in English between the word abstain in verse 11 and this word having in verse 12. They actually come from the same root word. And the root word is just the idea of having or holding something. But they give different nuances. So in verse 11, the idea is that we should hold ourselves away from fleshly lusts. But what we should be holding on to is an honest, good, beautiful, moral, holy way of life. The word honest in the King James there isn't restricted to, to honesty in the sense of telling the truth. Some translations say a, a good life or a, a life that is so good or so excellent. That's the idea here. The word is just simply good. It's a good life. Upstanding, moral, godly. And so the difference here between verse 11 and 12 is sort of like you're holding one thing at arm's length while you're embracing the other. Have you ever seen the Heisman Trophy? It's given to the best college football player each year, and the image of the trophy is of a football player who has one arm extended. He's giving a stiff arm to fend off would-be tacklers. He's holding them away from himself, but what's the other arm doing? He is holding the football to himself, protecting it, keeping it safe, and so that's that's the idea here. We need to hold sinful desires away from ourselves while embracing a lifestyle that is good. They go together. The idea of a lifestyle is what conversation means. It's your lifestyle. It's your way of life. It's more than just your speech, although your speech is obviously involved in your way of life. But this word is one of Peter's favorites. He's used it before a couple times in chapter 1. He's going to use it three or four more times as we, as we move forward in the letter. And here he strongly emphasized how we are to live a good life among the world. And what Peter, when Peter uses the word Gentiles here, 
He's not referring to non-Jewish people. He's referring to non-Christian people here. Our words pagan or heathen would probably bring the idea of cross. That this, is, this is Peter's way of referring to lost people, not just non-Jewish people. So even though Christians are out of place in this sinful world, even though we're surrounded by people who don't believe in our Lord and Savior, it is still important, and maybe we should say all the more important, to maintain upstanding, moral, beautiful, good, godly lifestyles as opposed to joining in with the world and following those sinful desires. But when we do that, we're going to look different from the world, right? We're not going to fit in. Which just goes to show what we already knew is that we're aliens and strangers here. But when we do that, this world may look at us like we're the problem. Notice Peter says there in verse 12, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers. This was probably happening to these readers because they were already facing some persecution because they were Christians, and that persecution would intensify in the coming years. But this was a common thing in the first century, especially as, as Christianity began to spread because it was so different from pagan religions. A complete 180 from polytheistic, immoral, pagan religion. One author said this, Unbelievers viewed Christians with suspicion and hostility because the latter did not conform to their way of life. It looked so different from this world, and it threatened the pagan culture. It threatened uh, the pagan way of life, the pagan religion, and even in some areas, the pagan economy. A good example of this is in Acts chapter 19, and I want you to turn there for a minute. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is ministering in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a, a very important city uh, in Asia Minor, in the ancient world. And it was known for the false worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis. And this false worship was a huge part of the city's way of life, of their culture, and even their economy. People would travel from all over to come to Ephesus to worship Diana, to visit her temple, and even on their way home, buy little trinkets, buy little souvenir false goddesses that they could take home with them. But here comes this man, Paul, who has the audacity to preach Christ crucified in this city. And people were believing and people were turning from their pagan ways, which threatened everything. Look at verse 23 of Acts chapter, nine, of Acts chapter 19. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. That way referring to Christianity. Verse 24, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. 
so that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath. And they cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not where they were come together. More than half the people didn't even know why we're in a mob. But I'm angry about something. We'll stop there for, for our reading. Demetrius saw Paul and the other Christians as a threat to his income, to his way of life, to the very culture of his city. And so he formed this huge angry mob. And we didn't read, but if you keep reading later, this thankfully as town clerk diffuses the situation at this point, he, he diffuses it enough to dismiss the mob. But this story is a great illustration of how this world views Christians as evildoers even though we've done nothing wrong. Hopefully. This word evildoers back in 1 Peter same word used in John chapter 18 when Pilate asked the Jewish religious leaders what accusations they bring against Jesus. You're bringing this man for me to judge. What did he do? And they basically said, look, if he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have brought him to you. So what's the accusation? There was no accusation against Jesus. King James translates John 18.30 as, if he were not a malefactor, there's that word, and if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Pilate, if he wasn't a bad guy, he wouldn't be here. No specific charges. No, no accusations. Now, we might could take this a little too far, but if we are abstaining from fleshly lusts, and we are living good, godly lives, then what realistic charges could be brought against us? I don't mean people could never bring charges against us, but what realistic charges could they bring against us? Remember Jesus told his disciples, when you're persecuted for my name's sake, rejoice. Do you remember in the prophet Daniel's life, there were some very jealous men who wanted to hurt him? And they scrutinized his every move, they watched him closely, and they found nothing wrong with him. And those men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So do you remember what they actually accused Daniel of? They turned Daniel into the king for praying to God. Say, well, Daniel had done nothing wrong. Exactly. They brought charges against him, but they weren't realistic. Daniel had done nothing wrong. But this world views Christians as evildoers. And that hostility and suspicion was generally accepted in the ancient world. And it's why Nero, who's, not emperor, uh, who's emperor in a few years here when Peter writes this, or a few years from the time Peter wrote this, in 64 AD, Rome burned 
And Nero is able effectively to make Christians the scapegoat for burning this city down because people hated him anyway. There's an old historian, an ancient historian named Tacitus. And he said this about the burning of Rome and Nero. He said, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. What abominations? No realistic abominations. It's just that they're threatening paganism. They're threatening our way of life. Listen, nothing has changed. This world still looks at Christians as troublemakers. And that attitude is growing even in America. If you don't see that, pull your head out of the sand. Don't be the ostrich. We're the problem because we believe the Bible. We're the problem because we believe that Jesus is the only way to God. How stubborn of us. We're the problem because we don't support abortion. We're troublemakers because we don't believe in same-sex marriage. How unloving of us. This world sees Christians as the problem because we threaten their sinful way of life. We don't belong here. And, and yet, while our human nature would be either to withdraw from all this or to fight back, Peter, the same man who cut Malchus's ear off, now tells us the right way to respond when all this is happening is to hold to that good way of life so this world sees that. You think Peter has matured a little over the years? And so Peter says here in verse 12 that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold. The idea here of shall behold, it sounds like something futuristic, but it's not the idea here. It's the idea of, of them seeing our good works is a continual thing. I, I like the way the New American Standard translates it. Uh, that translation says, as they observe them. It's an ongoing thing. Is that we should be living good lives and that this world should be seeing them. Simply put, we must continue to love and live the way God commanded us to do, even when we're reviled and slandered and mistreated, because we want this world to see that. We want this world to take note of that humility and love and godliness in our lives. And there's a very spiritual reason for that. Peter says that they may, notice the end of the verse here, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's why it's important to abstain from fleshly lusts and hold to a good lifestyle, even though we're out of place for doing it, and even though the world may not understand why we're doing it. But they need to see us doing it. The reason is so that other people may come to glorify God as well. I like what one author says here. 
He says the implication is not that the enemies will praise the noble deeds of Christians while they themselves remain pagans. Rather, the evangelistic hope is that the opponents themselves will be led to glorify God and to worship the true God whom Christians already know and serve. I believe that's what Peter is saying here. Is that hopefully unbelievers, even hostile ones, will see the gospel lived out in our lives and, and the Holy Spirit will use that to convict them and they too will repent and believe in the great God we already know. And they'll join in glorifying God with us, especially when Christ returns, especially in the judgment, especially on the day of visitation. Now, Peter understands that not all unbelievers will be saved, no matter how we live. I want you to flip over to chapter 3 for just a, just a second. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15 and 16, and we sort of see the flip side of this, at least the flip side of the response of unbelievers. Chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, they may be, uh, excuse me, they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I think that sort of gives us the, the opposite end of the spectrum in that even if we're good witnesses and we're ready to give this answer, there, there are some people that aren't going to believe. They're still going to reject God and they'll be ashamed one day. But that's not the hope. That's not Peter's desire. That's not God's desire. And that shouldn't be our desire. Our desire should be that our very lives will be evangelistic. That the holiness we manifest and the good deeds that we show forth will bring more people to our great God. Didn't Jesus say the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount about our lives, about our good works, about glorifying God? I read from that scripture earlier in the service. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. It's the same thing that Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week I mentioned that we are walking billboards for our God. Whether you like it or not, one way or another, you are an advertisement for your God. And we think back to what Aristides wrote about our forefathers in the second century. I think they seemed to be pretty powerful advertisements, didn't they? A group that loved their enemies. A group that loved each other so much that if someone didn't have food, they would fast themselves and save up that food to give to someone in need. That's some sacrificial love right there. But you know, when we think about today, most surveys that are done asking people why they reject Christianity, it's that they don't reject it because of history, they don't reject, reject it because it's illogical. They don't reject it because of lack of evidence. Most people reject Christianity, at least they say, because of Christians. One author says this, Modern people contend that the greatest proof that God does not exist is the behavior of Christians themselves. Isn't that sad? and backwards from our whole purpose in this world. 
we should be some of the strongest proofs. We should be some of the most powerful defenses. But when we live like the world and we don't show God's love, we're a bunch of hypocrites and the world sees right through that. You're not fooling anybody. As we close this morning, I want you to ask yourself what, what Aristides would write about you and what he would write about North Bryant. Would he look at you and see someone who fits right in with this sinful world? Someone who is selfish and unloving and immoral and chases sinful desires? Would he look at us and see a group of people who claim to love one another but never show it? A group of people who claim to have this great connection but don't have any real unity? Or would he see people who are different? who don't fit in with this world, who strive for holiness, purity, morality, and people who are always doing good, even to people who do them harm. Are you that kind of person? Are you the coworker that others turn to when they need help, when they're hurting? Do they know that they can count on you? Are you the kid at school who is, who is gentle and kind and loving to all the other students, even the ones that aren't that cool? Or do you make fun of them and bully them and act angry? Do you help others in need? Or do you turn a blind eye because they don't deserve my help? Be ye warmed and filled. Your life matters so much because it is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that you have. And if we're going to fulfill the purpose that we know we have from verse 9 to show forth God's praises, then we need daily lives filled with holiness and goodness so that others are convicted to respond to God's call and be called out of darkness and into His marvelous light just like we were. Let your life be a witness. I'm going to close with one more quote. William Lane Craig is a very famous Christian apologist and he ends his apologetic work that is reasonable faith is the name of the book and he says this more often than not it is who you are rather than what you say that will bring an unbeliever to Christ this then is the ultimate apologetic for the ultimate apologetic is your life would you stand and let's bow for a word of prayer Father, we are we're sinners, but we're saved sinners, Lord, and we're your people. And we know you have a great purpose for our lives to share your love and show your goodness. And God, we need your help to do that. Help us to abstain from fleshly lusts and help us to hold to a good life so that others see our good works, not so that they think we're good, but so that they glorify you. Father, if there's someone here today who's lost, we pray that they'll trust in Jesus. And anyone else that needs to make decisions about following you, Lord, we pray for your will to be done. God, we thank you so much for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. 
This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.